If you got a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we've been in a series working through Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount now for some time together, and that's where we are again this morning in Matthew chapter 5. We'll be in verses 27 to 30. And if you're new with us, I'm going to just say welcome. This morning you've come on a, a, a great day where we talk about sex, lust, and porn. And so um, you, you picked the best Sunday of the year to visit with us at Redeemer. And so um, uh, that's where we'll be in Matthew chapter 5, taking a look at what Jesus says about those issues in our lives, particularly within a very sex-saturated culture that we call America in the 21st century. We've been working our way through here, and what we're seeing is that Jesus is wanting to get underneath um, the deeds to the the desires of our heart that drive them. And he told us back in Matthew 5.20 that what... um, what, 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 is, what is necessary for us to enter into the kingdom of heaven is a righteousness that is deeper than that of the religious people of Jesus' day. And so it's not just about what you do with your hands, but what's coming out of your heart, the desires that you find deep within. And Jesus has pushed us on things like murder and anger. He's pushed us on things like integrity and truth-telling. And he's going to push us this morning on the issue of adultery and what lies underneath it of lust. And so, so far in the Sermon on the Mount, as we've taken a look at some of these texts, Jesus has called us a lying murderer, and this morning we're going to find that we're all probably guilty of adultery as well, at some level. And so if you came in here this morning trusting in your own righteousness or your own merits before God or what you're able to do to impress Him, I want you to know that Jesus just kind of obliterates all of that and says what you need is grace and mercy and forgiveness and salvation. And so I'm just going to say that at the very outset this morning, that all of us fall short of the bar that Jesus sets here, and we're, we want to throw ourselves upon his mercy, all right? Find ourselves to be poor in spirit, mourning over our sin. But what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 about adultery and lust, we pick up in verse 27, we'll read down through verse 30, it'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible in front of you. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Now, Jesus picks up on the Ten Commandments here, and it's very relatively clear from the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament that God prohibits adultery. That it's out of bounds for his people. And adultery in the Old Testament and in the New as well is basically to have a sexual encounter or experience sexual intimacy with someone that you are not in covenant union with, that you're not married to. And the reason that God confines sex to the marriage relationship is because of its purpose. See, we live in a culture that has exchanged the purpose of sex just for the pleasures of sex, right? Um, and, and listen, as a married man, I'm very thankful to God that he created sex. It's an enjoyable thing. It's a very pleasurable thing, but it has a purpose to it as well, right? And what many have done in our culture is exchange the purpose of it for just the pleasures of it. But the purpose of sex is this. When you look at the Old Testament and the New, what you see is that God is a God of covenant. He's a God who pledges himself to his people. In the Old Testament, you see that as he pledges himself to people like Abraham. And even with Noah, he makes a covenant. And with Adam, he makes a covenant. Or with David, he makes covenants. 
And all throughout the Old Testament, whenever God made a covenant with people, that he initiated that with a sign. There's a sign to that covenant. And so when he makes a covenant with, think of, for instance, when he makes a covenant with Noah, there's a sign of what? That he's never going to flood the earth again. He puts a rainbow up in the heavens. It's a sign for him, a sign of God's covenant. So that every time you would see that rainbow, you remember God's grace and mercy, but also his justice, and that he's not going to flood the earth in the same way that he did in those days. Or you look at the New Testament, you see the covenant relationship that God has with his people through Jesus Christ, and it comes with two signs attached to it, one that initiates that covenant, and the other that is the repeatable sign of that covenant. You have the the sign of baptism, as those who come to faith in Jesus are plunged beneath the waters, and they're raised to walk in newness of life. They're initiated into Jesus' people, into the church through baptism. It's a sign of God's covenant relationship with us, external, visible sign of what God is done internally within our hearts by raising us to life. But you also have the Lord's table. You also have communion, which we'll share together this morning. That's the repeatable sign where we come to the table frequently and we take of the bread and we take of the cup to remember Jesus' body that was broken for us and Jesus' blood that was shed for us and to renew our allegiance and our loyalties, our love and affection for him. So there's two signs that Jesus, God gives in the new covenant. Baptism and the Lord's table. And the relationship, listen, I share, I share all that with you because I want to say this. The relationship that a husband and wife share together is not one of consumption where we're consuming one another, but it's one of covenant where we're pledging ourselves in commitment to each other. That's the relationship that God shares with his people. That's the relationship a husband shares with his wife and a wife with her husband. And there is a sign associated to that covenant relationship as well. And the sign is that of sexual union and intimacy between a husband and a wife. It is the initiatory sign where two flesh become one. And it is the repeatable sign by which you renew those vows continually. It it, it functions, there's a purpose to it because it bonds you together with that individual. There's a bonding, it's like a bonding agent in the relationship. And God intends it to be that way. There's a beautiful design for it within covenant unions, right? The problem is when we want to exchange the purpose of sex for just the pleasures of sex because we don't want necessarily to be bound together with one person for a lifetime, but we want to experience multiple partners, Right? Or, we, or we, we, want, we want to have sex with someone that we're not married to, that we're not engaged in covenant relationship with. And what happens in those occasions is we find ourselves being bonded to individuals with whom we have no covenant union. And so what happens, li- listen, let me get real practical and we, we, gotta, we gotta get, right? We gotta move because we could spend all morning talking about just this. We gotta get to what Jesus says in the text, but I wanna set it up this way. What happens is this, is that sex is intended to be a whole life entrustment, right? That's what marriage is. It's entrusting your whole life to another person, right? And so whenever you get naked before another individual and you expose yourself in vulnerability and intimacy, it's a sign of what's going on in all the other areas and arenas of your life. And so that you're exposed before that individual, not only physically and sexually, but you're exposed before them financially and legally and emotionally and spiritually, that you're giving yourself and your entirety over to another individual. There's a whole life entrustment is, the per- is part of the purpose of sex. It's a sign of that in the, in the covenant union. 
And whenever you exchange the purpose of sex for just the pleasures of sex, what you're, what you're doing is you're saying, I, I want to have the, the pleasures associated with sex, but I don't want to entrust my whole life to this individual. I don't want to entrust my, I don't, I don't want to be one with them financially. They're a mess, right? I don't want to be one with them emotionally. I don't want to be one with them spiritually. I don't want to be one with them legally, bound by covenant union and commitment to them until death do us part. Right, and so we have the pleasures without the purpose, and what ends up happening is we end up bonding ourselves together, whether it be through casual hookups, if you don't know what that word means, right, if, casual sexual encounters, or whether it be through, right, casual hookups, or whether it be through, um, you know, serial monogamy, where, look, I'm not sleeping around, I'm with this one person, but I'm with this one person for three years, and another person for two, and another person for one, and another person for three, and we engage in sexual union because we have these romantic feelings for each other, we find each other to be physically attractive, and so that's the culmination of that, and so we end up binding ourselves together with other individuals that it's really hard then to pull yourself apart. It's like taking your finger and putting a, a smearing a bunch of super glue on it and sticking it onto a two by four, right? And then going, well, you know what? I don't want to carry this two by four around anymore. And so you got to rip your, your finger off of that two by four. Listen, that's going to cost you something. You're going to leave a little bit of skin in that game, right? That's what happens whenever you, it's, it, it functions like a, it's, it's super glue of the soul, you get bonded at a soul level with another individual whenever you expose yourself in that capacity to them. And whenever you begin to try and tear that apart, it's painful, incredibly painful to pull that apart. In fact, you leave a little piece of yourself there because you were never intended to be bound with multiple individuals in that capacity. God designed it for it to be one man, one woman for one lifetime. Are you with me so far? This is heavy, I know, right? Welcome. <laughs> Spring break, right? Let's go have fun. But listen, listen. That's what God's intention is for it. That's what God's intention is for it. And so adultery, anything outside of that, anything outside of that is less than God's design. And that's why so many individuals who find themselves in abusive relationships where they've engaged in sexual intimacy and they, they'll say things like this. They'll say, I feel trapped. Right? You ever heard somebody say that to you? I feel trapped in the relationship. Why? The reason you feel trapped is because you've bound yourself to someone in, in, a, in a way that God intended to be for covenant union and you, it, it, to pull apart. It's like an emotional or spiritual divorce. Even though it's not a legal divorce, it's like an emotional or spiritual divorce. And it's so painful. And so God sets it out of bounds and he says, listen, have, sex is a good thing created by God, but it's intended for one man, one woman, for one lifetime. And it's a beautiful thing, beautiful thing. It initiates the one flesh union and renews it repeatedly. But just like in all the other portions of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't stop there at the deed, does he? He didn't just say, don't have sex with other people other than the person that you're married to, right? That's not where he stops. That's where the Pharisees stopped. That's where the religious leaders stopped. They stopped there at the level of D, but Jesus keeps pushing it further down to the level of desire. And because he doesn't stop there, then we can't either if we want to be honest with this text because he gets to the desires underneath that, and that's where we want to spend the rest of our time together this morning. 
Because Jesus says that in the same way that anger is the seed of murder, so also lust is the seed of adultery, he says. So in other words, we saw this a couple of weeks ago with anger, where we said that anger, right, if anger is like, if, if, if murder is the full-blown tree that's filled with all kinds of fruit, then anger is the seed in the core of that fruit. And in the seed, the seed has everything that it needs under the right conditions to blossom into a whole orchard of trees. And Jesus says that lust is the seed of adultery. Jesus gets underneath. You see, my, the, the summer between my senior year in high school and my freshman year in college, there was a man in the church that I came to faith in, was discipled in, in South Louisiana, who owned a uh, general contracting business. And he'd gotten a contract to work on a home uh, for the, our church secretary. And the, she wanted to replace all the old siding with some new vinyl siding. And so we, it was, it was going to be like a two or three day job max. And so we roll up 7 a.m. the first morning, begin to tear off the old siding. And the more of the old siding that we tore off, here's what we begin to discover, is that this was going to be more than a two or three day job. And here's why. It's because there have been multiple water leaks around the home. It was a pier and beam home. So it was up off the ground and it was, it was, it was supported by these concrete pillars and wooden support beams. And so as we got all the way around the house, there were multiple places where we had to literally pull everything out, all the framing, and replace everything inside. We had to pull the two-by-four framing out. We had to pull the seal beams underneath the house. And because that, at that time, I was about 135 pounds dripping wet, right? The skinniest dude on the crew it was my job to get under the house when they jacked it up, right? Which I didn't think was a very safe thing for me to be doing, uh, but they assured me that it was. And so, of course, right, I'm up under the house banging out the foundational beams of this house that they had cut to replace them with solid, stable ones, right? Now, we could have rolled up and just recovered the entire home with vinyl siding. But then several years from then, what would have begun to happen? The whole home would have come crashing down to the ground. See, Jesus is not only concerned with the siding of your life, but with the structure of it. And that's what he's getting at here, is that lust is indeed the seed of adultery, Right? In, verse 30, in verse 28, Jesus, when he speaks of the word lust, the word that he uses in the Greek text is the word epithumeia. Now, that sounds very academic. Let me tell you what it means. Thumeia is the, the root word, right? It's desire. Epi is over. It's a prefix meaning over. So it means this over desire or inordinate desire. That's what lust is. It's an inordinate desire, an over desire for something. See, oftentimes our lusts are not for things that are necessarily bad things, but they're for very, things that are very good things that we turn into ultimate things that begin to rule and control our lives, right? Sexual desires are not bad things. They're a gift given by God to be enjoyed in the confines of marriage, but an over-desire for that and a fixation on that. In fact, when Jesus says, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, that word look there is a word that literally means this, to stare, to gaze, to gawk, right? To fix your eyes on it and not let go. It's not a passing casual glance, like you're flipping the channels late one night and catch a, catch a glimpse of something on, 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 the, on, the, on, the, on the TV and you keep moving forward. It's no, you, you stop, you lock down, and you watch the whole show, right? right? Because it's awakened something within you. Right? It's not a casual, that doesn't mean you don't find other people of the opposite sex attractive. Doesn't mean that you don't find your spouse desirable. Doesn't mean you don't have strong sexual feelings. 
What it means is, so this is not an over-desire for that where you think you have to have this in order to have fulfillment and satisfaction in life, that it's your highest aim and ultimate goal. And Jesus says that over-desire, that over-desire, just like all our other desires, right? You can have a desire for food that's healthy, but you can have an over-desire and be a glutton, Right? Or you can have a desire for a home, a roof over your head, and have an over-desire for that and end up house poor. You know what I'm talking about? Because right? there's an inordinate desire. Or you can have a desire, right, for certain, certain you know, even necessities or luxuries in life, but have an inordinate desire and be wrapped up and captivated by greed and materialism. There's, there are legitimate desires that when they become over-desires or inordinate desires, they turn into lust. And the New Testament uses this all over, all over its pages, this word to talk about our lust as these over-desires or these inordinate desires. And listen, what... So it's not just, it could talk about power, it could talk about money, it could talk about possessions, it could talk about food, but here Jesus talks about sexual intimacy. A sexual lust, a sexual desire. And, and listen, you and I live in a culture that feeds our over-desires. It feeds them, right? Think about the, er, earlier this year, there was a movie released in the box office. It was a sequel to the movie from a couple of years ago. The, if, if gray wasn't dark enough for you, now it gets a little bit darker, Right? And so Fifty Shades of Grey released a few years ago and now Fifty Shades Darker. And here's the deal. It portrays violent, deviant sex, right? And, and people, we've become so desensitized in a very hyper-sex-saturated culture that, that people from all walk grounds, backs, backgrounds and walks of life, they're going to theaters with HD screens, Dolby surround sound, and they're sitting in tiered stadium seating with bags of popcorn and Cokes, and they're being entertained by violent, deviant, abusive sex, sex acts on the screen. And they're paying for that with no shame. With no shame, because this, the culture in which we live has been so hyper-saturated with images of sex that we've become desensitized to it. Right, over the course of the last 20 years, it's kind of like the, the frog in the pot of water. You guys have heard that illustration before? Right, you take the frog, you put him in the water, and in lukewarm water, room temperature water, he just sits there and goes, ribbit, right? Catches flies for you in the house. But you slowly turn the burner on and you slowly crank the heat up. And what happens? That frog just kind of continues to adjust to the temperature until eventually he boils to death. Right? He doesn't realize what's going on. And that's what's happened in our culture over the last 20 years. We've become so desensitized to images of flesh on screens that we would consume as entertainment and feel no shame about it whatsoever. And there's perhaps no other place within our culture or within the Western world or even within the global now culture to see how this has had ramifications on our life than what is politically correct terms known as the adult entertainment industry, which is pornography. See, there's a myth, there's a myth going around that pornography use or pornography viewing is, is just, just uh, it doesn't hurt anyone, Right? I can do it in the privacy of my own home, on my internet connection, or on my cable box, 
right? I can rent on-demand videos or I can pull it up free on websites. It doesn't hurt anyone, right? But the, but the, but the, the truth is, that's a, that's a lie, and the truth is it, has a, it creates massive hemorrhaging, massive hemorrhaging. It's not an innocent piece of entertainment that you can consume and enjoy that doesn't have repercussions upon you. It's like somebody saying, listen, man, I love drinking antifreeze every morning and pour a little bit of it, right, in my coffee, sweetens things up a little bit, right? Do you know antifreeze actually has a, somewhat of a sweet taste to it? It's kind of like consuming antifreeze, right, small amounts of antifreeze over the course of, you know, months or years and going, look, I, 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 I don't know, man, it tastes really sweet. I'm not sure my organs are shutting down right now. I'm not sure where my kidneys don't work anymore. I'm not sure where my heart's going into arrhythmia, right? That's what pornography does to us. That's has done to our culture. It's created massive hemorrhaging and damage in several different areas. Let me give you a few this morning. Listen, back in 1986, the then U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. C. Everett Koop, he made this statement about pornography. He said, it's a crushing health problem, a clear and present danger. It's blatantly anti-human, and we must oppose it as we oppose all violence and prejudice because of the consequences he could foresee it creating within our culture, but not only in the culture at large, but within families and within individuals. Here's a few of them. Porn, first of all, porn causes massive personal damage. Massive personal damage to the individuals who are consuming it. Listen, I, I read an article this week that was released by the Witherspoon Institute. Um, it's a research organization and they produced a paper on, and they had a, a, a number of the consequences and effects of pornography use within the lives of individuals who consume it. And here's a few of the things they, they discussed um, first, those individuals who are consuming it themselves, it, which they said predominantly it's men, but one of the most rapidly growing demographics who are using pornography is women and particularly young women. But listen to what they say. They say, pornography gets written off as a woman's problem to deal with, uh, but listen, consider the extensive effects of pornography on the primary users who are men. Countless men, they say, have described to us how while using pornography, they've lost the ability to relate to or be close to a woman. They have trouble being turned on by real women and their sex lives with their wives collapse. There are men who seem like regular guys but spend hours each week with porn, usually online. And many of them admit they have trouble cutting down their usage. They also find themselves seeking harder and harder pornography. In other words, more violent and graphic depictions of sex acts. Here's, here's what they're saying. It's, it's almost like the, the guy who takes a hit of a drug for the first time and it's like euphoric. The next one's not quite as much so they go seeking a little bit more and a little bit harder until they find themselves in full-blown addiction to the most violent and graphic pornography that is produced today. They go on to say, overall, the body of research on pornography reveals a number of negative attitudes and behaviors connected to it. It functions as a teacher. In other words, it creates expectations for you of what sex should be like within the confines of marriage. It's a permission giver. In other words, you can push the boundaries, whether they're comfortable with it or not. And it's a trigger of negative behaviors. The damage is seen in men, in women, and children to both married and single adults. It involves pathological behaviors, illegal behaviors, and then some behaviors that are both illegal and pathological. Right? It has personal consequences. One scientist said it creates new roadmaps in the brain 
for stimulation and enjoyment and pleasure. He said it, it, it offers an endless harem of sexual objects hyper, that hyperactivates the, active, the appetite system. And so your appetites get conditioned to that. And so it wants to continue to walk down those same paths over and over and over and over and over again because it finds stimulation there. And so it really it rewires the way that we think, not just at a moral level, but at a physiological level. It, has pers- it creates massive personal damage. But I want you to consider the fact also that it creates collateral damage. Because many of us think, well, it's just, it, just, it just creates damage in the users, but that is not true. That is a lie that we is thrown around within our culture to pacify people's consciences because it has massive collateral damage. It causes damage to your spouse if you're married and your future spouse if you are now single. Listen, one, one, one study said this. It said, in North America and Western European culture, wives generally seek marital relationships founded upon mutual respect, honesty, and, and, and love. It says pornography is depicted on the internet, enshrines the opposite. It enshrines relationships. It holds up relationships, right, that are based on disrespect, detachment, promiscuity, and often abuse. This difference, they say, gives rise to the unique distress and harm when a wife finds that her husband has secretly been using pornography. It says several women researchers who've talked to women, they, say they feel betrayed, they feel a sense of loss in their life. They feel as if they have been abandoned, they have a mistrust, a devastation, and an anger when, that's, when that comes to light in the relationship. Not only does it affect them emotionally, but also they also found that out of 350 couples who were surveyed, 62% of them said that the internet pornography industry had played a role in their divorce. And brought their marriage to an end. It has collateral damage on your spouse or your future spouse. Because listen, if you don't think that the images, if you're single, let me just go ahead and throw this out there. If you're single right now and you don't think that the images that you're viewing online today or tomorrow or last week are going to somehow shape and distort your view of what sex within the confines of covenant marriage is supposed to look like, you are fools it will absolutely shape that. In fact, some of, you, some of you who are married now, your sexual intimacy with your spouse is, is diminished because of what you consumed in your past. And you have not yet broken away from some of those images that continue to haunt you in your mind. And you know that to be true. Not only does it have collateral damage on your spouse, but also on your children. On your children. I want to read to you an open letter that was written from a daughter to her pornographic viewing father. Some of you may have seen this a couple of years ago as it began to circulate on the internet. But it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. I want you to hear what she says. She says, Dear Father, I want to let you know, first of all, that I love you and forgive you for what this has done in my life. I also wanted to let you know exactly what your porn use has done to my life. You may think this affects only you or even your and mom's relationship, but it has a profound impact on me and all of my siblings as well. She says, I found your porn on the computer somewhere around the age of 12, just when I was starting to become a young woman. First of all, it seemed very hypocritical to me that you were trying to teach me the value of what to let into my mind in terms of movies. Yet here you were entertaining your mind with this junk on a regular basis. 
Your talks to me about being careful with what I watched meant virtually nothing. Because of pornography, I was aware that mom was not the only woman you were looking at, so I became acutely hyper-aware of your wandering eye when we were out and about. This taught me that all men have a wandering eye and can't be trusted. I learned to distrust and even dislike men for the way they perceived women in this manner. As for modesty, you try to talk to me about my dress, how my dress affects those around me and how I should value myself for what I am on the inside, but your actions told me I would only ever be beautiful and accepted if I looked like the women on magazine covers or in your videos. Your talks with me meant nothing and in fact just made me angry. As I grew older, I only had this message reinforced by the culture we live in, that beauty is something that can be achieved if you look like them. I also learned to trust you less and less as what you told me didn't line up with what you did. I wondered more and more if I would ever find a man who would accept me and love me and not just a pretty face. When I had friends over, I wondered how you perceived them. Did you see them as my friends or did you see them as a pretty face in one of your fantasies? No girl should ever have to wonder that about the man who is supposed to be protecting her and other women in her life. I did meet a man. One of the first things I asked him about was his struggle with pornography. I'm thankful to God that it is something that, has, has, ha, that hasn't had a grip on his life. We still have had struggles because of the deep-rooted distrust in my heart for men. Yes, your porn watching has affected my relationship with my husband even years later. And if I could tell you one thing, it would be this. Porn didn't just affect your life. It affected everyone around you in ways I don't think you ever realized. It still affects me to this day as I realize the hold that it has on our society. I dread the day when I have to talk with my sweet little boy about pornography and its far-reaching, greedy hands. When I tell him about how pornography, like most sins, affects far more than just us. Like I said, I've forgiven you. I'm so thankful for the work God has done in my life in this area. It is an area that I still struggle with from time to time, but I am thankful for God's grace and also my husband's. I do pray that your past this and that many more men who struggle with this will have their eyes opened. Love, your daughter. It has collateral damage, church. It doesn't just affect the consumers, but it affects those who are closest to them in ways that are unthinkable in the moment, in ways that you cannot imagine. But not only does it have this kind of collateral damage, but it also has, causes legal damage. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Sex, uh, the porn industry fuels the sex slave trade. Right? There is a market for young women who are now taken captive and lured into settings, whether it be through young men in their classes at schools or young men that they meet at a party or young men that they might find, uh, they might meet out in the mall or a movie theater who think that they're pretty and they are being used by pimps to lure young girls into the sex slave trade to feed the appetites of those who are consuming pornography because at some point the visuals on the screen are not enough because it's like that drug that continues to wear off and so they move into actual 
practices and engaging in sexual acts, oftentimes with girls as young as my daughter who are in grade school. Pornography fuels the sex slave trade. It provides a market for it. But not only does it cause that kind of legal destruction and damage, but it also leads people down a path of very violent and aggressive behaviors. In fact, a few years ago, Salvo Magazine released an article in one of its editions. And the article was entitled, The Path from Playboy to Sex Offender is Well-Traveled. And it talked about, documented three sex offenders and the common link between all of them who were now registered sex offenders in in prison was the fact that they had been excessively using pornography. And those began to work themselves out into their actions and the way that they engaged with, with people in real life scenarios. So it causes legal damage, but finally... Finally, pornography causes eternal damage. I want you to look at what Jesus says in the text. This is pretty strong language. Because in verse 30, Jesus says, For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. He talks about plucking out your eye or cutting off your hand. Right? Something far worse Jesus talks about than the legal damage or even the collateral damage or even the personal damage that lust and pornography does. He says it also has eternal damage. Right? There's a damage to your soul that it does that isn't, that's more than temporal in this life but it is eternal, he says, in the fires of hell. Because Jesus says, listen, if you make peace with lust and pornography, if you, make pe- if you sign a peace treaty with it, Right? And you're not resisting it and fighting against it and seeking to put it to death. And Jesus says, that part of that is evidence of the fact that you have not been converted. You are not, I'm going to say it as strong as I possibly can this morning, that if you've made peace with porn, you are not at peace with God. If you made peace with lust in your life, you are not at peace with God. If you entertain sexual fantasies about what you would like to do and you dwell on those things with other men or other women, then you're, you're not at peace with God. Now, I'm not saying that you will never struggle with temptation, that there will never be enticement for you. But the very fact that you say you struggle with temptation implies there's a resistance there. That you're not just giving yourself over to it freely and willfully and constantly and consistently and habitually. In fact, John says it this way in 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. He says, We have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness. We lie and we do not practice the truth. Other places it says the truth is not in us. It's not in us. So if we walk in darkness, and the word walk in the Bible refers to the way that you live, your habitual patterns of life, the paths that you walk down. If they're consistently walking, living in darkness and engaging in lustful fantasies without any resistance or any pushback or seeking to put those things to death, Jesus says, the truth is not in you, and you're not practicing it. That's strong language. That's strong language. Jesus says you should go so far as to cut off your hand, pluck out your eye. Now listen, Jesus isn't talking here literally. He's talking metaphorically. Now some people in church history have taken him literally, like Origen. Origen read that text, and he went and castrated himself. Like, dude, you probably should have thought that through a little bit more, Right? <laughs> Go get a few commentaries, maybe talk to like a life group about that. What do you guys think this means? 
But he's not talking literally, he's talking metaphorically. And we're going to get to that here in a moment as we close, but listen. Jesus says there's an eternal cost to it. And I don't say this to beat you up. I'm saying this to hopefully some of you might wake you up. To see that maybe you've never crossed the line of faith. Maybe you've really never turned from ruling your own life and placed your life under the good and gracious rule of God. If there's no resistance, if there's no pushback, if sin can run rampant in your life without any conviction, it has great cost and does deep damage. So what do we do about it? I'm gonna give you four things and we're done. I'm gonna get out your way and we're gonna take communion together. But here's the first one. What do we do about this? Jesus says that we must learn to put our lust to death. He says don't coddle it, don't cuddle it, don't pet it, don't hold it close, don't keep it in the, in, in, in the closet. He says kill it. Like the command in the Bible over and over again when it comes to our sin is not to make peace with it but to put it to death. To go to war against it. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, verse 13, Paul says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There was a great Puritan author by the name of John Owen who wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. Right? In other words, the killing, putting sin to death. And this is what he said. He said, you must be killing sin or sin will be killing you. I don't know if that's proper grammar these days, but that's what he said. Uh, either you're dis- killing sin or it's going to kill you. It'll destroy you, right? And so how do you kill it? How do you put it to death? Let me give you several ways. First one is this. You have, first of all, you have to experience regeneration before you can go to work on mortification, right? Otherwise, if, you, if you're not born again, if you never really cross the line of faith, if you never, the Holy Spirit's never come to dwell within you, then you're not trying to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. You're trying to put to death the deeds of the body by your own willpower, not by yielding to the power of God that's come to now to take residence within you and allowing the Holy Spirit to have his way. But so if you're going to put those things to death, you have to come to life, right? Like Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, for you were once dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive in Christ Jesus. He brought you from death to life. Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 1, that we are now born again to a living hope by the mercy of God. That we've come to life. That we didn't just walk an aisle, pray a prayer, sign a card, get dunked, go to camp. Whatever we did where we thought that we maybe had this spiritual experience. There was a lot of emotion in that. But have you ever really come to life? Have you found new desires being born within you? Desires that want to kill sin and cultivate righteousness. So that, you, that the Holy Spirit will be prompting you to put your lust to death. If you've never been born again you will never be able to mortify your sin. You will never be able to put it to death. If you've never come to a place where you've stopped trying to do it on your own and you've begun to trust Jesus for forgiveness and cleansing and healing and renewal, that's the first step to recognize, as we said a few weeks ago, you are poor in spirit, you cannot do it on your own and you grieve over that and you cry out to God, save me. And he reaches his hand down and he raises you up. And then you begin to go to work at killing sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. The second thing is that you have to confront the lie. You have to confront the lie. 
talked last week about uh, Tim Chester's book, You Can Change, where he talks about several lies that we believe and the truths to counteract them. Here's, here's a lie that many believe, that God is not good, so I have to go looking for satisfaction elsewhere. But Chester says, if you're going to come against sin in your life, and particularly the sin of lust, you have to believe that God is good so you don't have to look anywhere else. That he is fully satisfying, he is fully fulfilling, both in this life and forever, and ever, and ever. That he's absolutely all that I need. And so whenever you begin to sense lust rising in your heart, then you go to war against that lie that things are going to be better for me, things are going to be more fulfilling for me, more satisfying for me if I entertain that thought. Things are going to be more satisfying for me if I follow that path, if I watch that video, if, if, if I scroll through that Instagram page. I'll be more fulfilled, I'll be more go to war against that and cut it off at its root by saying no that is not going to be more fulfilling than God God is fully satisfying both now and forever and so I'm going to flee to him I'm going to run from lust I'm going to run toward the Lord right so you're running toward him you're not just sitting in neutral and so whenever you feel those desires rising in your heart, you open the word and you get on your knees in prayer and play, cry out to God and you begin to read scripture and you begin to fill up on this as opposed to the images of flesh on the screen. Right? And so, so you, 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 you go to work against that lie that, that God is more satisfying than my lust. Third. Third. Paul says in Galatians 5.16, but I say walk by the Spirit. Don't just put the death of the deeds of the body by the Spirit, but you walk by it. In other words, you order your life in such a way that you're living the patterns of your life under the leadership direction and guidance of the Holy Spirit. So whenever he convicts, right, you don't just kind of run that stop sign. You ever been there before? <laughs> when the Holy Spirit begins to convict you of a particular area of your life and you just kind of go, you know what? I'm gonna look both ways. I'm gonna hit the gas. <laughs> I'm gonna run the light. No, that you, that, that, that when he, Paul says when you walk by the Spirit, when you live under His direction and you respond to His conviction, He will never lead you into a place where you are lusting and viewing pornography. He will not. And so you walk by Him. And whenever He convicts, you stop. And you turn. And if that means you pick up the phone and you call someone, you say, I'm in, man, I'm in a battle right now. Like I need to call in some air support. I need to call in some more infantry because I need help with this. Would you pray for me right now in this moment? And you need people in your life in Christian community that you can call day or night, anytime. And they are willing to respond and get on their knees and pray with you and for you. But then finally, some of you, do you know what it means to scuttle a ship? It means you sink it where it sits. In 1519, Hernan Cortez sailed across the ocean as a Spanish explorer and he landed on the shores of Mexico to explore and to conquer for Spain. And whenever he hits the shores, when his people hit the shores, men hit the shores, he gives an order to scuttle all the ships out who were harbored in the, in the bay. Because he knew what lied ahead of them was going to be challenging, it was going to be difficult, that many of them would die in the process of basically overrunning a people, right? So what he does is he commands them to scuttle the ships so they could not get on the boats, row back, get on the ships and sail back to Spain. In other words, he was cutting off their path of escape. 
And listen, some of you need to scuttle some ships in your life this morning. You need to scuttle them. You need to sink them right where they are. You need to cut off the ways back, right? In the same way that Jesus speaks of cutting off your, plucking out your right eye, cutting off your right hand, there are things in your life right now that would inflame your lust that you need to sever, that you need to cut ties with. For some of you, what you need to scuttle right now, this morning, is your secrecy. Because it's been in the dark for so long and no one else knows about it. You need to sink the secrecy down beneath the waters and come forward in confession, as James says, that you would confess your sins one to another and pray for each other. Some of you, that's what you need to scuttle is your secrecy. Some of you need to scuttle uh, your, your, your cable subscription or your satellite subscription. Right? You need to sink that where it sits right now. Some of you need to disconnect your, your Instagram feed or your Twitter feed. Right, because that's the pathway, the gateway into which you found a whole world of deviant sexual acts all across the internet is through images that other people have posted on their social media accounts. Right, some of you need to, there's, there's things that you need to scuttle right now in the harbor of your life. What is it? If lust and porn is an issue for you, there are things that need to be sunk so you have no way of going back to them. There's internet accountability you can put on your phone or on your computer. Have you taken that step? Whatever it is for you, I don't know what it is for you, but scuttle it today so that the damage that has been incurring in your life can be stayed and begin to heal. And know this, Ben's going to come on up, come on up and lead us in worship. Know this, that as you, whatever it is that you have to cut off in your life, whatever it is that you have to cut out of your life, I want you to know this, remember this, that there was one who was cut off for you. At the cross, as Jesus hangs there, he cites Psalm 22 and he cries out to God in a loud voice and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, Jesus was cut off from the eternal relationship he had shared with the Father by the, power of, by the person of the Holy Spirit. And the love of God was void of Jesus' life in that moment as he was cut off from his Father. And he was cut off for you. So whatever it is that you have to cut out of your life, know that he was cut off for your salvation, for your renewal, for your restoration so that you can have peace with God and find the wholeness of a relationship with Him. This morning, we're going to take the bread and the cup together. If you're a Christian in the room this morning, maybe there's some repentance that you need to do. Maybe there's some, some praying you need to do before you come forward. They're going to lead us in a song. And, and as they do, maybe you need to pray and just in confession and repentance before you come to this table take of the body and take of the blood of Christ and remember his body broken and his blood shed. If you're a Christian, whether you remember this church or not, but you've, you've, you've turned from ruling your own life and placed your life under the gracious and kind rule of Jesus, I want to invite you to the table, whether you're a member here or not. If you're not a Christian, I want to invite you to Jesus before you come to his table. To the one that was cut off for you. So you, you can have peace with God. So be, I'll, I'll be, uh, on the end of the service, I'll be out and
right out here outside the doors of the, of the worship center just to the left if you have questions about this message or about what it means that Jesus was cut off for you so that you could be made right with God I would love to visit with you about that please on your way out stop by if you're a guest stop by and introduce yourself I'd love to meet you but I'm going to pray for us we're going to come to the table and we're going to sing together let's pray Father you've made a way for us God that when we could not we could not make a way for ourselves and you made a way for us that you've been gracious and kind that you're forgiving slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and no matter where we've been or what we've done God that you are willing to receive us home with arms open wide so for Christians in the room this morning maybe who have been battling against lust and pornography God I pray that they would in repentance come to the table and come in confession to a brother or sister and begin to scuttle some ships in their life and put to death the deeds of the, of the body by the power of your Holy Spirit. And for those who are not Christians, God, I pray that you would do a work to bring them from death to life and begin to make them whole and give them peace with you. I pray these things in Jesus' name.